Amen. Okay, so we are starting a new book today. This is exciting to me. So we just spent oh seven months. Not completely because Jerome was preaching part of that time, but we were doing the attributes of God. And that was very helpful and uh, refreshing to my soul to consider God and to try to get it, remind myself of who our God is, our Creator. But now I'd like to take us through a study of the book of Philippians. And so we want to start that today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning in the book of Philippians. So please open your Bibles with me. Here we go. I've entitled our message today, Healthy Church Relationships. And I think you'll understand why as we move through the passage. I think Paul demonstrates healthy church relationships with the Philippian church. So let's do this. Let's read verses 1 to 8. Stop and ask God's help, and then we'll just teach through the passage, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. Father, we ask for your opening of our eyes to understand, to be clear about what you've communicated through Paul to the Philippians and also to us today. We pray that, Lord, as we embark on a series of studies in this book, that it would have a transforming nature and power in our lives and so we ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be mightily at work within each person doing what he knows that he needs to do in our lives to make us like Jesus. So, Lord, please do this for your glory's sake. Amen. Okay, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, the epistle begins with Paul sending a salutation, a greeting, in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. There's the author. Paul, he includes Timothy, but really Paul is the one authoring this epistle. And then the readers, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And then the final blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's break this down. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. There are certain things we know about Paul as he's writing this letter. When Paul wrote it, he was suffering his first imprisonment in Rome. 
Paul had at least two imprisonments. He died after his second one. This was his first one where he was released and he then continued on his missionary labors. Later he was arrested again and the tradition says that he was beheaded in Rome under Ciro's, I'm sorry, Caesar Nero's reign. But this is his first imprisonment and when Paul was in prison the first time he wrote four prison epistles. He wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four. And he's writing the book of Philippians somewhere between 61 and 63 AD. It was 10 or 12 years earlier when Paul actually founded and planted this church in about 52 AD. And now it's somewhere between Oh, 61 to 63 AD when he's actually writing this letter. And we know Paul is writing from prison because of certain things that he says in the letter. For example, chapter 1 verse 7, we just read it. He says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And then in chapter 113, he says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And then in chapter 117, he says, The former pro proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So he mentions his imprisonment three times and his affliction one time. He's speaking about the same thing. He's in chains, according to Ephesians 6, verse 20. He's in chains in prison, chained to a Roman guard as he's writing these letters. We also know that Paul expected to be released from prison. He didn't believe that he was going to die, at this point anyway. Later on, in 2 Timothy, when he, that was his final epistle, he does write about how he did expect that he was going to die and that he's writing sort of a swan song to Timothy telling him to take over now that he's going to be passing into glory but at this point he believes that he's going to be released from prison and he actually was Paul was right about that we know that because in chapter 1 verse 19 he says I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ I believe he's talking about being delivered from prison and then in chapter 1, verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Rather than dying to be with the Lord, I know that I'm going to remain and continue. I'm going to be delivered. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. So Paul was in prison he believed though that God was going to deliver him, that he was going to be released and continue his ministry. We also know that Timothy is with Paul and is probably going to be traveling to the Philippian church very soon. When Paul wrote to Colossians and to Philemon in the introduction, the first couple verses of both of those letters, he includes Timothy in his greetings to Philemon and then to the Colossian church. And he does that here of course. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. So he calls Timothy a bondservant as well as himself. What he means by that is that Timothy was a co-laborer with Paul in the gospel. Now, Paul calls him a son in the faith. He was very, very close to Timothy. 
Timothy had been traveling and working with Paul for many years at this point. Paul had taken him along on his second missionary journey and he had been discipling him now for years. And at Timothy had grown in his spiritual maturity to the point where Paul could send him to various places to do ministry on his behalf. We know this because of chapter 2, verse 19 to 23. Notice what Paul says there. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. So we know Paul's in prison. He expects to be delivered. Timothy's with him, but he's going to be sending Timothy. Instead of ministering to him there in prison, he's going to send Timothy to the Philippian church to continue to seek to their spiritual growth. And then Paul says there in chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now let's just remind ourselves, how did the church in Philippi actually come into existence? How did it get started? And go back with me in your thinking process to the book of Acts, the end of chapter 15, and then all of chapter 16 gives us the story. Paul is traveling with Barnabas and Silas. And he's on a second journey. He's trying to go into Asia, and the Spirit of Jesus won't let him do that. Won't, he won't permit him to do that. So he doesn't go into Asia. He tries to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of the Lord won't let him go into Bithynia. So he has only an, one other option left to him. He can't go north. He can't go south. He can't go east. The only place he can go is west. So he keeps going west, and he ends up on the shore at Troas, right along the... the the Mediterranean Sea there. And in the middle of the night, God gives him a vision. And it's a man from Macedonia calling out to him, come over and help us. So when he wakes up in the morning, he tells his other missionary band, this is what happened to me last night. God gave me this vision in the middle of the night with a guy from Macedonia asking me to please come over and help them. I think this must be from the Lord. And so they all deduced, yeah, that's got to be from the Lord. So the main province of Macedonia was the city of Philippi. They made a beeline straight for Philippi. When they got there, they discovered that there weren't enough male Jews in the city to have a synagogue. You needed 10 male Jews to open up a synagogue in a town. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. It wasn't a main bastion for Jewish people to populate. It was mainly Romans that lived in this colony. There were a few Jews. There was one Jew, Jewish woman by the name of Lydia with her household and some other women with her. And because there was no synagogue for them to meet in on the Sabbath, they met at a riverside to pray together. And Paul found out that they were down there at the riverside praying, and so he went down to talk to them. And it says, as Paul was speaking to them the gospel, the Lord opened up Lydia's heart. Love that expression. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. She was converted right there at the riverside. Paul then baptized her and her whole household and she urged the missionary band to come and stay at her house. She had, evidently she was a wealthy woman. She was a seller of purple fabric. She was a businesswoman. She had means and so she invited them to come and stay at her home. 
And they continued their ministry there in Philippi. There was a certain demon-possessed slave girl that was bringing her masters a lot of profit because she was able to tell fortunes. And she was just bugging Paul and Barnabas and Silas day after day saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And Paul was annoyed because he knew it was a demon behind this girl. So he cast the demon out. And as soon as that happened, she was useless to her masters to be able to tell fortunes anymore. So they were enraged. And they went to the police and they said, you've got to arrest this man. Look what he's done. He's destroyed our business. And the magistrates took Paul and Silas and they beat them, and then they threw them into the, not just the regular prison, but the inner stocks of the prison, like a dungeon. But uh, you can't really keep down a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And there at midnight, in the middle of the night, instead of bemoaning their condition and complaining to God about what he was allowing them to go through, they were singing praises and hymns to God. And as they did that, God sent an earthquake, <laughs> and it opened up all the prison cells. And... The jailer woke up, looked around, and saw these prison doors open, and he thought everybody had escaped, and he knew that if they'd all escaped, he was going to be executed. That was just the law at that time. And so he drew his own sword to kill himself, and Paul saw him doing that and says, wait, 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 do yourself no harm. We're all here. Don't kill yourself. And he had a conversation with this jailer, and it ended up with the jailer saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question. And Paul led him to Christ, and his whole household. He baptized them that night and the jailer then washed Paul's stripes and Silas's stripes, set food before them. And then interestingly, Paul voluntarily went back into the prison cell and sat down again because the next morning when the officers came, they found Paul in the prison. And what I also find interesting about this whole story is that the church seemed to have made Lydia's house their headquarters where they were meeting by this time. Because we find in Acts chapter 16 verse 40, let me read this to you. Acts 16 verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia and when they saw the brethren, so the brethren are there at Lydia's house, they encouraged them and departed. So already Lydia had opened up her home. It was a meeting place for the gathered church, even though it was a very small church. You've got Lydia's family, you've got the jailer's family, and maybe the slave girl who was delivered from the demon. Maybe she was part of the church too. So you have a small little nucleus of believers, but they're meeting there at Lydia's home. Now, 10 or 12 years later, the church has grown much larger we know that because there's overseers watching over the church and there's deacons. You don't need multiple overseers if you've got two families. <laughs> so there, this church has been growing, it's thriving. Now Paul does say in Philippians 1 that he's writing to all the saints who are in Philippi including the overseers and deacons. Overseers is another word for pastors or another word for elders. They're interchangeable terms. And a deacon, is the word simply means servant. But this is not every member of the church because you had to possess certain qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to be a deacon. So this is an official servant recognized by the church given certain responsibilities. He, he would be overseen by the elders 
who have the spiritual oversight of the whole church, but a deacon then has a certain realm of responsibility given to him by the elders, and he models servanthood to the rest of the body. That's what a deacon does. We, we haven't ever officially appointed any deacons here at the bridge. We do have two elders or two overseers or pastors, Jerome and myself. And did you notice that the church in Philippi did not have a single pastor? That's interesting because most churches that I knew anything about growing up had one pastor, then they had a bunch of deacons. And the deacons were sort of like the elders. They, they functioned as a, an advisory committee or advisory board to the pastor. But in the Bible you have a multiple number of pastors and a multiple number of deacons in the church. So there's a team that does this ministry together. Even missionaries. When Paul traveled around doing missionary work, he never traveled by himself doing it alone. He had a Timothy or a Silas or a Barnabas or who, there's Titus. There was always people that he was discipling and working with and sending here and there. So the principle is this. God in the scripture wants his people to work in cooperation as part of teams rather than one guy doing it alone and there's a lot of good reasons for that if you have a single pastor of a church it's too easy for there to be problems in in leadership if he goes bad he leads the whole church down the wrong path if you've got two elders or three elders or five elders there's now more authority distributed amongst the elders who provide sort of a checks and balances. They can hold each other accountable. They can speak into each other's life and it presents a more healthy church. And so God has established there to be multiple overseers, multiple deacons, and then when people go out in missionary bands, they go out in a, in a team as well. Notice who Paul writes to. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to, and we would expect him to write, let's say Paul's going to write a letter today to a church, you might expect him to say, to the pastor of the church at so-and-so, or the leaders of the church at this position or this, but he doesn't. Paul writes this letter to all of the saints in the city of Philippi. So that tells me he must have believed that all of the saints were capable of hearing his instruction in this letter and putting it into practice. They were not so dependent upon their leaders that Paul had to write to the leaders and then they had to funnel it down to them. All of them could receive his instructions and put it straight into practice. So he put a, a great worth upon every individual child of God. In spite of their spiritual maturity or whatever gifts they happen to have. And then he says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor and blessing. Peace is the calm tranquility of soul, the inner tranquility that we possess as a result of His grace in our lives. So grace comes to us and peace flows from our lives because of the grace of God that pours into our lives. Paul wishes for his readers both grace and peace from whom? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. If Jesus Christ was God's greatest creation, as some teach, the first and greatest creation of God, an archangel, how could God couple himself 
and Jesus Christ as the source of the most important blessings in our life, it would be blasphemous to put a created being together with the Creator saying, those, these two people are the source of all your blessings. So this is just one of those little implicit things that we find in the scriptures that help us to see the deity, the Godhood of Jesus Christ. He's coupled with the Father wherever you go in the New Testament. The, the source of all blessing. As you work through the letter, you're going to see just how greatly Paul esteemed Jesus Christ. Because in 104 verses in this book, 67 times, Paul refers to Jesus. That's over half of every verse. He's making some kind of a mention of Jesus. Paul was Christocentric. <laughs> when you think about Tiger Woods, you think about golf, right? When you think of the name Babe Ruth, you think baseball. When you hear the name the Apostle Paul, you should think Jesus Christ. Because that's what he was about. His whole life was wrapped up in Jesus. He uses expressions over and over and over like this. The affection of Christ Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus. I trust in the Lord. Receive him in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Glory in Christ Jesus. Stand firm in the Lord. And it goes on and on and on. Everything he talks about is somehow wrapped up in the Lord. I love that. And that's the way we should be as Christians. Our whole life revolving around Jesus. Every aspect of it. Whether it's your family life, your work life, your devotional life, your church life. Everything is a, revolves around Jesus. He's the son and we just revolve around him. In fact, he even says in chapter 1 verse 21, For to me to live is Christ. That says it well. For to me, to live is Christ. Now remember that the Philippian church was part of a Roman colony. That's what Philippi was. And in the Roman colonies, the emperor was worshipped. And he was called Lord and Savior. They were required to burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. But here, Paul starts off his letter by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were used to being required to say that Caesar is Lord, and Paul says, no, there, there is a different Lord. Jesus Christ is truly your Lord. And he's going to be returning. And they awaited his coming with eager expectation. Now, let's move on to the historical setting of this letter. What we do know is that the Philippian church had sent Paul a gift. They sent it through one of their members, through a guy whose name was Epaphroditus. In fact, we know this because, well, chapter 2 verse 25 says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger and minister to my need. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, But I have received everything in full, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. See that? A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So the Philippian church wanted to send Paul a gift. They heard that he was in prison. 
They loved Paul. In fact, this is one of those letters in the New Testament that is so personal and so intimate between Paul and the Philippians. There's this deep, deep bond of affection and love between the church and Paul. When they heard that he's in prison, they sent him a gift. And we're going to find out that wasn't the first gift they sent. They were very generous. So they designated that Epaphroditus would be their messenger. And the word angel means messenger. He was the angel of the church in Philippi. And so he was to take the gift that they all came up with and, and travel hundreds of miles by boat and by land in order to get to this prison, in order to bless Paul and show their support for him. So Epaphroditus shows up with this gift that they had sent. However, along the way, he got really sick. Really sick. He almost died. Okay, let's back up now to chapter 2 and we'll see that in this letter. So in chapter 2, verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, meaning Paul says he's sending Epaphroditus back. Epaphroditus had come to him in Rome to minister to him, and now he's sending him back to Philippi. He's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who's also your messenger. They had sent him as their messenger and minister to my need. And I'm sending him back because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Now here's the guy who's sick and he's distressed that they're upset that he's been sick. A little backwards we might think. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So do you get the picture? Epaphroditus is sent by the church with this generous gift to Paul. He gets really sick on the way. He almost dies, but he recovers. And Paul says, your brothers and sisters back in Philippi are so concerned about you. You need to go back there so that they can be relieved and not worry so much about your condition. So Paul sends him back. And when he sends him back, guess what Epaphroditus takes with him? The book of Philippians. Paul writes the letter in prison, hands it to Epaphroditus, he carries it back, and when he gets there, the letter is read to the entire church. Now that's not all that we know about what's going on. We also know that Paul hopes to send Timothy to them very soon. We've already read that in chapter 2, verse 19. And he also desires to come to visit them himself as soon as he possibly can. He tells us that in chapter 2, verse 24. So, he's sending Epaphroditus back. He wants to send Timothy as soon as he can, and then he wants to personally come. Now, what I want us to focus in on for the remainder of the message today is Paul's relationship to the Philippian church. In verses 3 to 8, we get a glimpse into the relationship that Paul had with these believers. And I think it serves as a model for every church of what true church life should be like. His relationship with them can be summarized with four words. Thankfulness, prayer, confidence, 
and affection. Thankfulness, prayer, confidence, and affection. And in a healthy church, we should expect to find these four traits among the brethren. If you have a healthy church life, you personally should experience these four things. Thankfulness, prayer, confidence, and affection for your brothers and sisters who are in your church. And if you are lacking some of these traits, it tells you that something needs attention in your spiritual life and your relationship to your brothers and sisters. So let's work through them one by one. First of all, thankfulness. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. The very first thing Paul says as soon as he's done with his initial greeting and gets that out of the way, the very first thing is he says, I'm thankful for you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, Paul was not thanking them. Paul was thanking God. But Paul was thanking God for them. And every time he thought about them, every time he remembered the Philippians, he starts thanking God. Now, now why? Why would Paul thank God for the Philippians? Well, he tells us in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation, it's the Greek word koinonia. We usually translate it as fellowship, but sometimes it's translated as participation or partner or sharing. In this particular verse, the word koinonia has to do with them partnering up together and participating together to spread the gospel and to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The Philippian church from the very first day that the church was planted linked up with Paul and started supporting his work and together they started to work to advance the kingdom of God. So Paul says, whenever I think about you, I'm so thankful that you were not a lazy bunch of people. You got right involved from the very first day and you started working and laboring to advance the kingdom of Christ. Notice from the very first day. From the very first day, they started to witness about their new faith. They started to evangelize. They started to share the gospel with other people that they knew. And evidently, God had blessed them because now there's overseers and deacons. It's a large, thriving church from a tiny nucleus at its beginning. So they were active in evangelism. And that wasn't the only way that they participated in the gospel with Paul. They participated by giving. The Philippian church was generous, you might say, to a fault. Of course, it wasn't to a fault, but they were an extremely generous church. At one point, Paul took up an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he describes how the Philippian church gave. Now notice this. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Now brethren, he's writing to the Corinthians, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. This would include the Philippian believers. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much favor with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now what's Paul saying? 
He's telling the Corinthian church that when he told the Macedonian believers about the deep needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem, that their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed together in the wealth of their generosity and they gave, they were begging Paul for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And he's saying these people were poor. He calls it their deep poverty. So they're poor saints, but they recognize that they've got other brothers and sisters that are also suffering because of their poverty, and they were okay. They were okay with taking the little that they had. He says, um, according to their ability and even beyond their ability, they gave. So they were giving, giving to the point of sacrifice at this point. So this tells us that they were extremely generous. And they not only gave to the poor saints in Jerusalem, but they gave on many occasions to Paul's ministry and Paul's support himself. Because in Philippians 4.15, he said, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So no other church was sending Paul's gifts but the Philippian church. And they didn't do it once, they did it several times. Now they've sent another one when Paul is in Rome and they begged him for the opportunity to help support the saints in Jerusalem. What an awesome example to every church about generosity and giving to the things of God. I pray that our church would have that kind of a testimony. That when a need surfaces, whether it's in this body or in Bibles for Asia or some missions group that needs to spread the gospel around the globe, that we're going to dig deep and we're going to sacrifice to see the gospel spread, just like the Philippian church did with Paul. And so Paul is very, very thankful. Whenever he thinks about them, thankfulness floods his heart. And so my question to you is, are you thankful for your brothers and sisters when you think of them? Does thankfulness rise in your heart? For, not for them, but for what, to God, for what God has done in them. That's how Paul viewed it. He was thankful to God for what he saw in the lives of these believers. There was so much evidence of grace when he looked at them, that he, he said, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for so and so and so and so and this person. Lord, I just thank you for the wonderful work that you've done in their lives. And I can honestly say that that is true about me when I think about every person at the bridge. I see the things, the evidences of grace. I see the gifts that he's given to you and your, your dedication when we need it and your work and your labor in the Lord and the way you've grown in Christ. You know, I, I don't want to start rattling off names because then I'll miss somebody. But, but I'll just tell you, for each one of you, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful to God for what He's done in your lives. So this should be something that characterizes our church life as a body. We think about each other and we're just thankful. Lord, I just praise you for working, for saving, for sanctifying, Lord, for molding them, for what they mean in my life, for how they edify me and enrich me spiritually. So that's the first thing. Number two, prayer. First, Paul thanked God for them. Secondly, Paul prayed for them. He says in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. 
The first thing I notice about his prayer for them is that it was continual, always. And it was comprehensive, always offering prayer for you all. He prayed for all of them, and he prayed for them always. <laughs> and he says that about every, every church that he had planted. If you read Colossians and Ephesians and all the others, he's always praying for these believers. They're on his heart constantly. So what we need to consider as a church is, okay, is that true about me? Am I praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ? How often do I pray? I hope each one of you has a prayer life. I hope each one of you are setting aside time each day to pray. And when you do go to pray, you're remembering your brothers and sisters in the Lord and the things you know about them and offering those requests up to God. You, you remember that the sister who has the panic attacks or the sister who has a very difficult relationship with her mother or the brother who has a drug problem that he's constantly trying to overcome or the other person who is no longer with the body because of sin in his life and that he would repent and come back and you, see, you get my point you're remembering because let, let's face it as a small church there's no excuse for us not to know each other and as we know each other we ought to be praying specifically for one another for the things in each other's lives so I'm just gonna throw that out there for you this morning and challenge you to remember to pray for your brothers and sisters daily Number three, confidence. Paul was confident of God's work in them. Look at verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul tells us himself that he was confident of something. Well, actually, he was confident of two things. Number one, that God had begun a good work in them. Number two, that God would perfect the work that he started in them. Now this teaches me that we can be confident that God has begun a good work in other believers. We talk a lot about assurance of salvation. Like, do you have a sense of assurance that you are a child of God and that you're saved? That's assurance of salvation. But Paul takes it a step further and he says that he has assurance of their salvation. Now, of course, he can't have an infallible assurance of their salvation because only God knows the heart of man. But when he looked at what God had done in their lives, he was confident that God, number one, had begun a good work, and number two was, if he had begun it, he's going to complete it. He's not going to leave them hanging halfway through, but he's going to complete the work that he started. So, this is beautiful. Conversion is described here as God beginning a good work in you. See, when God caused you to be born again, He began a good work at that point. But sanctification and glorification are described as completing that good work that He started. So everyone that God regenerates and justifies he also sanctifies and will glorify. If he starts a good work, he finishes the work. And isn't that what we find in Hebrews 12 too? It calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Now what's an author? An author is the one who 
writes a book. He's the source of this book. So Jesus is the source of our faith. He brings it to pass. He brings it into existence in our life. Without him, we would never believe the gospel. So he's the author of faith, but he's also the perfecter, the finisher, the one who takes that thing that he starts and brings it all the way to its ultimate completion. So God doesn't start a project and then stop halfway through. You know, sometimes we'll do that. We'll get disgusted either with ourselves because we're no good at this project and we just uh, forget it. You throw it in the trash can. You know, you're trying to build something. I'm like, oh, don't get me started on that. I, I hate things like this. <laughs> Debbie's pretty good at it. But when you get these things where you have to put together and you got these instructions, I, I'll pay someone to put it together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give it to you. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes we'll, we, we won't start what we finish, or we won't finish what we start just because maybe we don't have the money that we need to finish the project. We get bored with the project. But God never starts something that he doesn't bring to a completion. That's what we find here. Faithful is he who calls us he also will bring it to pass. So this is one of those strong affirmations in the New Testament about the eternal security of the believer. When I was first converted for about the first 12 years of my life, I didn't believe this doctrine. I believed that you could lose your salvation. But I went through a process of learning and of seeing certain doctrines in the Word of God. And this is one that I came to embrace after about a dozen years of my Christian life that I, I saw it in the Scriptures, and I see it clearly now. If God began a good work in my soul, He's going to perfect it. I can trust Him for that. I can rest in the power of God to bring to pass what He has purposed from eternity. So, here's the thing I want you to consider. Paul was confident about their salvation and about God com completing the work he started in them and he wasn't embarrassed or afraid to tell them that he was confident that God started it and that God would complete it and that's what I want us to do here at the bridge we if we look around and we see evidences of grace in other people's lives that should give us a sense of confidence that God started a work and if God started a work, God will complete the work. And why don't we just share our confidence with other believers? Because that will encourage them. If you tell them, hey, I really see this work of grace that God has done in your life. I'll just choose one person this morning. It, it's Sister Pat. When Sister Pat came to our church, I don't know, four, five, six years ago. She, seven? Okay. She was a lot different than she is today. <laughs> um, Pat, now, when you first came, Pat, you didn't really um, get into the Word and share what your thoughts about the Word, but I've seen you grow in that, and you, you, I, I love when we have Bible study and you share your insights and your thoughts about the Scriptures. I see growth and knowledge and grace, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to tell you, hey, God began a good work, and I know if he started it, he's going to complete that work in you, sister. So trust him. See, that's the kind of thing we should be speaking to one another, words of life and affirmation. What, what do you see God doing in each other? Let's, let's celebrate that. Let's, let's proclaim that. Let's talk about that, because that gives glory to him, and it encourages each other. You see? So confidence. And number four. Affection. 
thankfulness, prayer, confidence, and then the final one is affection. Paul longed for them. Notice verse 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now notice some words here. Feel. And then the phrase, have you in my heart. And then the phrase, long for you all. And then the final phrase, with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's four words, feel, heart, long, and affection. All of these words tell us something really important. Paul really loved these believers. Paul had them in his heart. Paul was affectionate. When he thought of them, he, affection rose in his heart for them. He longed for them. He wanted to be with them. He had a, an intimate and a strong, close relationship to these believers and a strong affection. These are the kinds of words that a husband might use for his wife or a parent might use for their child. Words like heart, long, affection. But the Bible tells us that Christians are brothers and sisters. And a brother and a sister, it, it's not unusual to use words like heart, affection, and long, right? So this is a mark of a, of a healthy church. Strong relationships to the point that you feel a longing to be with each other and you have a strong affection for one another. This is completely different from the person who sneaks into church after the service has started, they sit in the back row, they don't talk to anybody, and they leave as soon as they can. You see, that person is not developing relationships with the body of Christ. To them, church is a service that they attend. It's a formal duty that they perform. It's impersonal. They go to watch the service and leave. That's not church life. That's not New Testament body life. New Testament body life is linking hearts together with one another to advance the gospel. And it can only consist when there are healthy relationships between the members of the body. When it's more than we know each other's names and that's about it. It's getting into each other's lives, learning their struggles, learning their trials, learning their joys, celebrating with their wins. It's all of that. It's becoming a family, a real family, where it's more than just attending the same service at the same time slot each day, but it's actually learning to get to know that person so that you can pray on their behalf and you can minister to them when they're down and need help. So I want to encourage us here at the bridge to go further when it comes to developing healthy relationships within the body. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you feel affection for others in the church? Do you miss them when they're not there? Do you have them in your heart? Can you say that like Paul says, I have you in my heart? Can you honestly say that? You have your brothers and sisters in your heart. Those are good signs that you're developing a strong and healthy relationship with others in the body. So let's look at these four marks. Number one, you're thankful to God for your brothers and sisters and what the Lord has done in their lives. And this thankfulness brings you joy. I didn't bring that out, but that's what Paul says 
in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Number two, you pray for your brothers and sisters. You find out what's going on in their lives and you intercede on their behalf. Number three, you're confident that God has started a good work in them and God's going to complete it. And you are not embarrassed to tell them that, to encourage them. And number four, you have them in your heart. You long for them and you feel a brotherly affection for them. And so let's go deeper when it comes to our relationships here in the body. And I'll give you some ideas. It's great for us to be regular when it comes to the meetings of the church. But I think that's only the beginning of healthy relationships. Consider finding other opportunities when you can get together with others within the body. Maybe brothers can meet for, for lunch sometime during the week. Both of them can connect that way. Perhaps couples can get together. One couple could have another couple over for dinner at their home. Or you could go out to a restaurant and have some uninterrupted time just to fellowship with them. Or if you're going to be taking a trip as a family, maybe consider inviting another family in the church to go with you. If you're going to the beach or to the snow or to Apple Hill or someplace like that, why not team up together and do it so that you can build those relationships in the body? You get the point. It's, church is not just attending a service at the same time, but we need to learn to get deeper into each other's lives so that we can be the body God wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for how Paul opened up his heart in this portion of Philippians to really reveal his genuine love, affection, and longing for the believers in Philippi and how that's such a great example for all of us. And there's so much we can learn from it. And we pray that we wouldn't just learn, but we would actually implement. We would apply these things, Lord. That we would, we would have each other on our hearts. So Lord, take us deeper as a body to really be that spiritually support spiritual support system for each other and to be there when brothers and sisters need us to rejoice when they rejoice and to weep when they weep and we ask you to do this Lord by your spirit in Jesus name Amen